Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. Rich Schmidt. We're here with Jess Arnold. It's June 21st, 2023, <laughs> and we're at Soder Vineyards in Carlton. Jess, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for interviewing me. Uh, first question is why wine? Mm, yes. Um, I. It wasn't really conscious. It was um, my early 20s. It was kind of like, okay, you know, sit down with yourself. You graduate with a liberal arts degree, and you say, well, how am I going to apply this? And I kind of just pieced together what I know I, I love and what I know about myself, which is traveling. It's connecting with people. Um, I had done some restaurant work and was exposed to wine. I enjoyed drinking it. I enjoyed comparing them and tasting them. But when it got to the point where I'm sitting on the floor of my bedroom and it's like, well, what are you going to put your energy towards? You're in your early 20s and you have a lot to give. What's it going to be? Um, I was kind of just given the answer. It just kind of hit me like a bolt of lightning and it was like wine. It's a confluence of things you love and um, things you'd love to explore. So through wine, there's community, exploring culture and philosophy. Um, I found a love of science um, and geology and um, it's kind of grown from there. So it started in hospitality and educating myself through courses and reading books and um, all the way to the production side of things where I've been for 10 years now, which is crazy. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, well, we'll come back to all of that, but let's start with uh, kind of life before that. So tell me about where you were born and raised and uh, sort of life before wine. I'm totally from California. Um, I'm from Los Angeles and the beach cities of Los Angeles and I went to school in San Diego. So. Um, a lot of my life was centered around that area of LA and California. Um, it's beautiful. I was always drawn to the mountains. Um, life on the beach is great, but um, there's sand everywhere and it's really hot all the time. So um, when I graduated, I found myself in the Bay Area. I'd spent some summers there as a camp counselor and I just knew I really loved it. A little more diversity with the weather and just in, in general. Um, and until I left California to go to New York when I was in my mid-20s, I just had always lived in California. Um, it's great to be from California, but um, when you live in a place like Oregon and there's so much lushness and so much green and so much life, you get kind of um, stuck. <laughs> so yeah, I came here in 2014 after um, my first harvest in Sonoma and um, I haven't left because I can't think of anywhere else I'd rather I'd rather be especially for winemaking um, this isn't really your question but as far as I'm concerned it's the best region in the United States for growing grapes certainly Pinot Noir and Chardonnay but um no shades of California but I'm really happy here so you mentioned you had kind of you had kind of a familiarity with wine before before the lightning bolt before you decided to pursue it you had a kind of familiarity with it tell us about your kind of initial work in wine and fine dining and initial kind of uh, understanding of it. Totally. I wouldn't call it fine dining. <laughs> it was dining. dining. There was um, some by the glass pours, but it was really just a 
a gastro pub focused on Giants baseball and um, beers on tap, but um, being in proximity to the like Napa and Sonoma wine countries, it was just kind of a no-brainer to take yourself there on a weekend, spend some time with your friends there. Um, and that was fun. It was really fun to be enjoying wine during the day. And I'd find myself kind of monopolizing the people in the tasting room's time and like talking about clonal variations. My friends are out back, just like, get on the bus, Jess, we gotta go to the next winery. Um, so from there, I started in the WSEP program. I couldn't keep a day job, but just at night, go and learn about wine. Um, and I eventually got a job working in hospitality in Napa and did that concurrently with the WSET Advanced Program. It was a really nice way to pair theoretical learning with some practical knowledge. I was talking about wine every day with guests. I was building the community I mentioned that I really love about wine industry. And um, I could pick the brains of the winemakers and then build a network that was very devoted to the wine industry just through proximity. Um, when I, I was in the tasting room for you know, the season until the fall, and I decided to, to take a sommelier program that was based in New York City. I was like, well, what a great excuse to go live in New York City. Um, I continued a restaurant background in that capacity while attaining my certified SOM accreditation. Um, that was an amazing experience. It's an incredible city. I suggest everyone live there for at least a little while, but um, after eight or nine months, um, a lot of questions about wine weren't being answered to my satisfaction, and those really had to deal with production. Um, a lot of textbook answer, answers, but no one had made wine on their, you know, for themselves. So I was like, great, well, to continue my education, let me sign up for a harvest in uh, Sonoma. I moved back to California in 2014 to work my first harvest. And it was an amazing experience at a well-equipped facility making really, really high-end wines. And so the standard, the foundational standard for winemaking was set at a high bar. I'm so grateful for it. But the um, style of the wine wasn't my favorite. I had a lot of intuitive questions like, you know, why are we, picking so ripe and then adding so much water to get the alcohol, like why not just pick, you know, just I had these questions. The stylistic choices were set. That was the house style, I respect that. But intuitively I was like, okay, well, I've learned a lot. Let me see how I can coerce this more my style. So I, I road trips to Oregon. I wanted to educate myself, learn more about the region. And um, I tasted it a few places and was like, oh, okay, I'm gonna move there and I'm gonna work in Oregon. Uh, one place in particular, I was like, I'm gonna work there. I'm gonna be a harvest intern there. <laughs> and so I came to Oregon in the winter of 2014. The timing was terrible. No one's hiring for anything, but pieced it together until um, May of 2015 when I started at Beaufrere as a harvest intern. And uh, it was an incredible holistic experience. Um, there was nothing they didn't have me do and I loved every second of it. And um, I was hired full-time after that harvest. So it's pretty fortunate, but um, it's like, great, I'm just gonna stay in Oregon and see where this goes. So I'll pick that back up in a second, but I'm curious about a couple of things. So let's talk about your, the wine, the SOM program. Mm -hmm. took you, they took you to New York. Uh, what was the, 
At the time you started that, were you thinking that was where you'd want to stay on that side of the wine industry? At the time, I was open to exploring all of it. There was no facet of the wine industry that I wasn't interested in. And I was so new to exploring it that I was like, great, I get to live in New York. There's no bad outcome. I'm going to learn something. And if it's not what I prefer, I can pivot. You know, early 20s, it's still relatively young to be discovering all that. So um, I was very open to what it would bring. Um, and when you're in a place like New York and you're working in the, in the hospitality side of the, of the industry, the exposure is huge. I mean, portfolio tastings, I mean, it's a home base for wines from all over the world. So, I mean, in that amount of time, <clears throat> I tasted enough wines for a lifetime. I mean, there's no such thing as enough wines for a lifetime. But um, I was really fortunate for the exposure that early in my career. And um, I'd say it definitely helped carve the paths that I took. One of them being, okay, I need to learn more about production and no one here has a satisfactory answer. They can speak to how wines are made, but I just, I need to do it for myself, yeah. I'm curious about that part too. What, so what made, you, what made you think that that was something you needed to know how to do? What made you think that you had to go dip your hand in production? I didn't want to sell wines to people that I couldn't um, speak intimately about how they were made. The, um, I think it just goes to, I'm a terrible salesperson. And I think like, I just really want, I want to be as genuine as possible. And um, I think the best sales people are, and that's how you make a connection. That's how you, you ingratiate someone to really believe in what you're, what you're offering them. And so I just wanted to feel like I could explain to someone how this wine was made beyond just like a textbook. And I mean, one harvest is hardly gonna scratch the surface of that, but um, I just, I wanted to say I did it. I had no idea that I would work my first harvest, like completely have my ass kicked and be like, this is everything, I love it so much. Like, let's do it again next year. Um, but I'm so lucky that I found it. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to be able to speak to it. Let's talk about that first harvest experience. Obviously you've talked a bit about it already. So at getting your ass kicked, but loving it. Tell me about that. What, 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 was, the, what was the work like? Um, we, we were a pretty big team, but it was very hands-on. So it was an amazing, immaculate facility, 750 tons, um, incredibly thorough sorting and just wave after wave of fruit coming in. Um, we would, our, our schedule was 6 a.m. to midnight every day. <laughs> I think I was on day 28 when I <laughs> like faked a stomach ache so I could go home that <laughs> day. I was like, like, it's so pathetic, but I was like, I was, I loved it. I didn't want to miss anything, but at a certain point I just was like, I think I just need to sleep a little bit. But um, I also thought that that's how all harvests were. They so aren't. If someone worked harvest here, we work really hard, but it's not like that. But it was necessary. It's not, I don't feel like it was for naught. I, I mean, we were just all cranking all the time. And, um, but it was high-end Pinot and Chardonnay. Again, not my style, but high-end. So I got to see what that standard was like. Um, uh, an incredibly well-oiled facility. So, you know, you look to your right, there's a hose bib. You look to your left, there's a glycol drop. So 
understanding what a nice layout for a winery is. I mean, there's an infinite number of ways to lay out a winery, but working in one that works really well as your first harvest, it's just, it's really beneficial. Standards for cleanliness, um, how precise we were about our additions and, for, and fermentation management. I mean, it was, I had no idea what I was doing, but it was, it was great to just kind of absorb it. It was so, such osmosis, just like show up every day and just be open to whatever they would task you with. And then just being so happy to do it. But yeah, I mean, at the end of harvest, you're like, wow, we, we got through that. And I'm still dear friends with so many people from that team because um, it's a bonding opportunity. And um, yeah, I wouldn't change it for anything. I'm also glad that that's not what harvest is like every year. Cause wow, I mean, it, it, it ages you, but um, you come out better for it. You really do hard work like that. And at the end of the day, you see what you've made, you know, and it's an amazing living thing in a bottle. And when you see people enjoy it again, it's that connection. You're like, heck yeah. From the people that tended the vines to the consumers drinking it it's come full circle. So obviously the first year you're, you're learning a lot and having a, kind of a lot thrown at you. How, how much did you feel you understood the kind of bigger picture? So my understanding of the bigger picture is that there's no component of the bigger picture that's invaluable. That's, there's no small component of the big picture. So even though I might not still to this day maybe have like a finalized, this is the big picture, I fundamentally know that every single piece of the puzzle to getting that bottle of wine in the hands of someone enjoying it um, is crucial. So I just was pleased as Pi to be part of whatever the big pic picture is. And still to this day, you know, we bring our interns on and it's like, you guys, we're, we're all here together. Cleaning a drain is not less important than doing a pump over because that drain, if it's, if it's dirty, it's going to affect everything. Like, um, so that's my understanding of the big picture is that we are all part of it. And um, everyone des deserves respect for such, no matter what we do in this industry. Um, yeah, still kind of discovering big picture, but yeah. <laughs> you talked about kind of a, an interest in Oregon and just sort of coming up here and finding it. What was your, what were your initial impressions of Oregon and of the wine industry? Oh, I, I, um, I felt really welcome here. It was just, it was, the quality was so high, but egos were, you know, knocked down a notch and, um, it's, it, the intention seems to just be a little more wholesome. Um, this is a generalization, um, of course, but I just, you know, I, when I walked into Beaufrere and they're like, this was a pig bar not that long ago. And this is, these are the, the modest means by which we make these amazing wines. And I found them so interesting and intriguing and still so well-made. And I was like, look, this is all you need is just some, really good intentions and a hardworking team. And so everywhere I had stopped in Oregon, I just kind of had gleaned that energy. Um, it's also incredibly stunning here. Um, green, lush, you know, you get through the, the rainy winters and it's so worth it. No one, in, no one appreciates sun like an Oregonian, I swear. I mean, just like the first rays, we just come out and then 
eventually we talk about how too hot it is, but, you know. But I, I felt uh, welcome and I felt like I could, could really become a part of the industry um, without having to change who I am and just contributing the energy I talked about. Like I have so much of it. So like, I felt like there was some space for me. I feel like there's space for, for a lot of people to just come here and be a part of something without changing who you are. You can contribute without being different. <laughs> Tell us about the first harvest of Beaufort. Oh, it was so different than my first harvest <laughs> in Sonoma. Um, there were three interns, the winemaker, Grant Coulter, Mike very much around, and um, it was just all hands on deck, wine made to the highest quality, small fermentations, you know, a bunch of two-ton fermenters. Um, the biggest tanks were five-ton, and um, but I started early, and I remember the first thing I did, you know, I came to work 10 minutes early, and Mike found me before Grant. He's like, who are you? I was like, I'm Jess, I'm new. And he's like, do you have a strong back? And I was like, I do. So he was like, we have erosion in the upper terrace and we're gonna go re-terrace the, the, the vineyard. So I spent three days doing that and it was like, oh my gosh, this is part of winemaking. You know, I was out there with Omar and I mean, three days we're just bonded. He's like, I didn't think you'd come back because we're just out there with shovels digging, but it was, it was so humbling. I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. It was like, from then on, it was like every part of this is winemaking. Um, and I was involved in the BD sprays. Um, you know, <laughs> I just had a flurry of memories that I probably shouldn't say on camera. Just fun anecdotes of what it was to, to make wine in an imperfect facility, but a incredibly capable facility you know it was charming and um those quirks added to the experience um but yeah with grant as our as our trustee leader we we got to do everything cap management bricks and temps i mean it was so involved and so intensive and um I was so I was so excited when they asked me to stay on after that harvest because I was like I I am behind this you know like the the team walks the walk and the biodynamics were never compromised Mike was around all the time um, and everyone was just hustling to get it done so it was really really impactful in such a great way. You mentioned obviously biodynamics a big big part of that was what was your familiarity with biodynamics coming into that harvest? Um, I was just an admirer. <laughs> I, I, I've always felt, oh my gosh, this is going to be on camera. I've always been connected to the moon. I mean, it is incredibly impactful. Just look at our tides. That's all I'll say about that. So I was really interested in the effects on agriculture. Um, read a few books about it and studied Steiner and stuff, but um, never practically applied it. Um, I loved that Beaufort practiced biodynamics. Um, it was wonderful to see the extent that they do. Um, there's the 500 and the 501, and those are prepared and applied. But beyond that, Mike was like, there's intuition too. Like you get to kind of just have some fun with it. And it wasn't these stringent protocols. There, 
is a time and place for being rigid with additions and measuring things, but I loved the artful craft of biodynamics and, you know, a heat wave's coming, so let's make a chamomile tea, which chamomile tea soothes a human being. Of course it's gonna soothe a vine. Let's spray it on there. So much of it's intention-based. I talked about that. Like, you have to believe that there is an effect, um, but I absolutely do. And then it's been measured. I mean, if you're spraying fermented cow manure on the soils, of course there's life in, the, in that compost. And of course it's gonna translate to your soils. And um, I think the impact, again, it's bigger than the person applying it. You just have to, you just have to believe in it and know it's there. And so um, anywhere I've worked actually has practiced biodynamics. And um, it's a standard I'd hope to continue on throughout my career is at least working in places that um, are open to those discussions. But um, when you see the fruit come in and it's beautiful fruit and it's filled with life and ladybugs and you know, it's, it's, it's cool to see that life as part of what you're put, putting into bottle. So you got offered to stay on a full time at Beaufrere following harvest. Uh, what was your initial role and what were your initial impressions of the winery outside of harvest? Okay, yeah, my initial role was so like question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> it was just kind of like, yeah, I remember having that discussion with uh, Mike and Mike Keaton. You know, it's, it's just, yeah, what do we call you? And I was like, I made up, I just was like, what about production assistant? It, to me, it insinuated vineyard work with cellar work. Um, my impressions of work beyond harvest is, first of all, you go through like an adrenaline drop off and it's winter. <laughs> so you're like, am I depressed? Or like, what's going on? But there's still so much work to do in the cellar. So you pick right back up. I think we were bottling or something. So to go from the work of harvest and being sticky all the time and navigating yellow jacket stings and to having a relatively quiet cellar and um, carrying the wines you just made through their malolactic conversion and into their finished stages. Um, it's really, it's relatively peaceful, you know? Um, on top of that, I was doing vineyard work. So I um, spent some time in, during the winter with the crew as well. So yeah, it wasn't, we don't, we didn't make sparkling wine at Beaufrere. We make sparkling wine here at Soder, which is, keeps us very busy all year round. But the, if there was any lulls, I got to go out to the vineyard, spend time with the crew. Um, they were incredibly patient with me because I was slow. My fingers were frozen, but I, um, what an incredible experience. I mean, humbling. Harvest is nothing compared to vineyard work in general, I think, but especially during the winter. So um, I found that really valuable. Um, and then monitoring malolactics, making sulfur additions, um, assessing quality, uh, racking, racking blends, um, all of that. I always, you know, when our interns leave, they come and they work so hard. And I wish they could be a part of seeing their wines transform. But um, I was lucky enough to see that. So yeah, different energy, but um, so much learned. I mean, yeah, 
to this day, I'm still like, man, every year I just, it proves to me how little I know, <laughs> like, you know? Yeah, there's always something to learn, but yeah, that first year, your learning curve is like this steep. Um, and I was just soaking it up. I loved every minute of it. And to their credit, Mike and Mikey, Grant had left at that time, and um, they involved me in everything. I feel really appreciative of, of that. So how did your, how long did you stay at Beaufrere and how did your role sort of grow over the time you were there? I was at Beaufrere for a year and a half. Um, I, I mean, there's, it, you, you, there's always something to learn, but I just, yeah, I, I was like, okay, well, like, let me go learn somewhere else. So I went to Bergstrom from Beaufrere. Um, I, I really, I grew like maybe the most I've ever, like that year and a half at Beaufrere, I mean, I would be like, what's a fork, like forklift, what? Like it's over there, you know, like seatbelt check, you know, like really, really grew. I mean, in so many ways at Beaufrere. And then, um, oh my God, that continued at Bergstrom. Started, I really, I learned, started to learn technique there. Um, dips my toe in managing. I mean, again, biodynamic producer, just could not be more grateful for the opportunities that I was allowed. You know, you show up, you work really hard, but you have to be let in, you know, you have to be, you know, I, it's, winemaking is so personal. It can be, it's such a creative endeavor and um, I really respect when people put their heart in a bottle and they're like, do you like it? <laughs> you know, it's like, and uh, to be brought in and be on a team that's contributing to that, it just means the world. So, yeah. You mentioned technique. Obviously, you talked about kind of your, your very first experience in wine not being sort of what you were, the technique you were hoping for. So tell me about starting to find your own style or find your own kind of technique along the way. Absolutely, yeah. When you start making wine, you're just... It's hard to fathom coming like your own technique because you're just trying to keep up and not mess up. Um, so, I mean, it's this will be my tenth harvest. I'm so green in winemaking in general. I mean, drop in the bucket, right? I've never done Southern Hemisphere any. It's just been Northern Hemisphere ten harvests, and um, that technique is like my personal spin on it is like just formulating like and then every year it changes i'm like what was i thinking last year you know like what what that doesn't make any sense so it's been adapting and i've been so lucky to have the mentors i've had because you carry pieces of what what they've developed i mean there's always going to be like the Grant and Mike Etzel and the Josh Bergstrom components of the Tony Soder, like those components are always gonna be a part of how my technique develops. Um, and then they also kind of gave me the um, resources to put my own spin on it. And so, yeah, I know I love whole cluster. <laughs> Thank you, Josh Bergstrom. Um, and Chardonnay, I mean, wow. If I had, coming to Oregon, um, I, I, I had made Pinot and Chardonnay. I knew I really was drawn to those varietals. I love sparkling wine as well. Um, you know, base of champagne, but Pinot and Chard. But um, I just never had seen Chardonnay the way that I have seen it in Oregon. And um, 
producers like Josh, Bethel Heights, um, Walter Scott, like they've just really kind of shown the potential for it. So as far as my technique and my style, like if I could ever just be like a Chardonnay maker, I'd be so, so happy. <laughs> I love you, Pinot. I love, we're like among Pinot Noir vines. They're listening to me. Um, but um, yeah, I think it's just a continual evolution um, that I look forward to evolving with. Um, it's kind of fun to just see what intuitively comes out of what your hands have made, so. So tell us about your time at Bergstrom. Yeah, it was so great. Um, I think that's like where I started to just kind of get some real footing. Um, it was a small team and to be involved in everything just meant so much. And for a voice to be, your voice to be considered and, um, your ideas to be implemented or trialed, you know, not saying it all worked out, but like to be part of a team that considers you was so awesome. Like it was incredible. Um, I was there for three years. They were so foundational. Um, again, amazing, amazing vineyard team, amazingly farmed fruit, incredible vineyard sites to work with. And then a creative open-minded team making wine. Um, but yeah, I think that like starting as a seller hand, uh, left as a seller master and I'm just proud of my growth there, but I have to hand it to them for allowing it, you know, it's, it kind of goes hand in hand. You can, you can be curtailed and someone can kind of shut you down. And that was, that was not the experience there. It was awesome. When you talk about your your growth there, are there specific things you, you look at as, you mentioned, kind of a foundational place? Are there certain things from your Bergstrom time that you think of are as kind of the, the main growth you had there? Yeah, I got, I got a lot more comfortable with lab work there. Um, and again, just kind of working with Travis and Josh and, you know, saying like, hey, like, these are some things we, we can do and we can do a little more in-house stuff here. It's coincided with them building this amazing new building that had a little lab in it. And um, I don't have a chemistry background, again, liberal arts degree over here. And um, to explore that, be supported in exploring that and running basic analysis, getting comfortable with running basic analysis and um, kind of managing Managing that information and presenting it to your winemakers and saying like, here we are, like, what's our next steps? It made me feel just really part of a winemaking team. Um, yeah, and then beyond that, like having um, our interns come on and, and gradually having like insights to share I mean, it, it, I'd always be like, I don't know anything, but I know this one thing. And it was really, and then next year, I know these two things. And so that feels so great, right? Like to, to pass on this much about where you're working, it just really, really felt good. And every year I've got a little bit more, a little more to, to hand over to someone else, but 
it's only because of all that was handed over to me. So, um, yeah. You mentioned obviously whole cluster at Bergstrom as well. Tell us about your experiences working with that. Oh yes, whole cluster. I mean, the the fruit that is that is farmed at Bergstrom is just it's incredible, and. We had a really nice string of vintages, 16, 17, and 18, when I worked there. And so these really beautiful lignified stems and the fruit's incredible. And so a lot of the producers that, you know, Josh was incredibly generous with sharing wines from all over the world. And a lot of those producers use a lot of whole cluster. We all love them. <laughs> so it's like, well, it, it was all thoughtfully done, but it's like, if this fruit's amazing, like, let's just, whole cluster it so there was plenty of tanks that were 100 percent whole cluster and they're extraordinary i mean if you have thoughtful cap management and you're extracting enough juice so that your air pockets don't get stagnant you can just have an incredible wine especially made from pinot noir especially grown in oregon so um we're definitely not shy about experimenting with it and um i was it was just proven time and time again how interesting those wines were. Um, so yeah, <laughs> it was a lot of whole cluster. You said you were there for three years and you were a cellar master. At that point, had you, did you have sort of designs on what would come next or what, what you were, what the eventual goal was? <clears throat> no, um, my goal is really just to keep learning. I think that that's why I'm drawn to winemaking is I just cannot ever imagine just being like, I've learned it all. And um, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, I guess I'd probably be characterized as, as ambitious. Um, I wasn't scattershotting a resume, but it was like, okay, you think to yourself, like, you know, you get here, what are next things that you could fathom? Um, and yeah, I just was like, okay, next step would be assistant winemaker somewhere, right place. I remember driving by Soder one day and he was like, if Soder ever posted for an assistant winemaker, I'd be really interested in that job because you think, you know, it gets to be smaller and smaller, the places where you kind of want to work. And so, um, yeah, the next day they posted for an assistant winemaker and I was like, huh. <laughs> I was like, and biodynamics is paying off. <laughs> so, um, Again, it was it was the timing. I you can learn so much at a place and be there for 20 years. I mean, I, every year is different. It's the beauty, the nature of the nature of what we do. Um, but um, sometimes you just kind of are like, okay, like this presented itself. Should I step that direction? And um, the timing worked out for me to 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 do that to put my to put myself out there. It was scary, it feels like a big step to the assistant winemaker. Um, but when you've been trained so well, when you've worked at such amazing places, um, you're more capable than you, than you realize. <laughs> so what was the transition like into that role and into Soder? Um, I was well prepared by working at Bergstrom. Um, it, lots of similarities with um, farming mentality, like no compromise. Um, so working with really, really meticulously farmed fruit, beautiful fruit. I really wanted to learn sparkling wine production. So that was the biggest learning curve. Um, it greatly extends our harvest. Um, last year, we, 
our interns were here from August 1st till Christmas. And, um, but it's a new interpretation of winemaking. So I found it super satisfying to dive into. Um, the transition for the role was, it was pretty seamless. It was just learning a new place, making sure that you're respectful of the standards and style, and then contributing the knowledge that you've gained from where you've worked before. So this was, it was, an, it was a healthy transition because those, what I could contribute has been accepted. And um, there was just so much to learn, which was very satisfying. As you set into the role, what, what were your kind of priorities? What were the first things you thought you either had to learn or, or had to accomplish? I wanted, there was um, four people on a team that was already established when I came on. So I wanted to make sure I was aware of, sensitive to, and understanding of what their roles were, how I could complement what they're already accomplishing um, and how I can be a support as a manager to what they what their tasks are what their charge is in our cellar um, cellar dynamics are a beautiful thing it can be incredibly intimate just working so closely in such a high stress environment with a small team of people um, making a luxury product you don't want to mess it up so coming in as the new person, I just wanted to be sensitive to those dynamics and then, and then contribute, you know. Um, and then be effective with helping with logistics. So I love cellar work, but um, that was a little, it's a little less of my role now. Um, is the gas ordered? Is cross flow scheduled? Is, um, this transfer happening, you know, do we, have we had our forklifts main, maintenance checked for harvest, you know, like is our press working? Those are like the less interesting side of winemaking um, that I do love, but yeah, just making sure that, so that everyone can get their job done, I've kind of checked everything off. Um, so it was a slightly new new experience for me, new role for me, but um, I love it. You also get another side of things, you know, it's like, I, would, I was ordering the packaging supplies at Bergstrom, but translating that to soda, like, you're talking to marketing, you're looking at, you know, you're, you're not just doing a racking um, as a seller hand, you're talking, you're looking at sales channels, and then you're talking to your packaging distributors, and then you're coordinating the time. So that was, that was something to really take on and learn, you know? Um, yeah. What about managing people? Yes, managing people. It's one of my favorite things. It's the hardest part. Um, a lot of creative and passionate people join the wine industry and that's what we need. But observing and honoring individuality of everyone and the different needs of managing those people is, I think, paramount. Um, I really, I love that opportunity. Getting to know people, what makes them tick, how they want to be communicated with, because 
at the end of the day, that's the connection that gets us through the slog, right? Especially with our harvest team, lots of hours together, not a lot of alone time. So um, it's one of my favorite parts, but it's definitely one of the hardest. Um, and I just mean that because it takes a lot of brain power. I want to be really thoughtful about it. I just want everyone to feel valued and of value. Um, and I'll never slack off on that. Um, hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, tell us about 2020. Obviously an, in an interesting year. Um, I'm curious about the effects of both the pandemic and of the harvest fires on your job and on just on Soda in general. Yeah. Almost forgot about that year. Sorry, yeah. Sorry to bring it up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if I start twitching. Um, yes. So. Soder was really resilient as a company, really resilient. Um, we have a robust following. I'm so grateful to them for wanting to keep enjoying our wines. Um, I hand it to our hospitality and culinary team, the way that they pivoted and um, got creative with other ways to interact with our consumers. Um, as far as the winery went, I was fortunate that through really rigid protocols, we got to continue coming to work. Um, we spaced out, but we had to keep taking care of the wines that were in barrel. Um, there was a lot less of it than in other years, but we couldn't forsake that work. And um, I'm really grateful because it was this much normalcy, like continuing to, to keep coming into work. Um, during harvest with the pandemic, um, I'm grateful for the team that we hired. They had amazing attitudes. They were really go with the flow. I found them a home where they could all live together. On their first day of work, we all showed up at a clinic to get COVID tested and met each other in a parking lot. <laughs> and then I took them to their new home where they just kind of were like bubble buddies. And then they'd come to work um, and they were willing to just go along with all of it. This weird time of pushing through harvest and really only act, interacting with each other. Um, when the fires came, they kept it up. I don't reflect on 2020 as a traumatic experience. I do not want it to happen again, but the team that I had was just willing to to push through. Um, on the winemaking side, we were willing to adapt, see what we could learn. You know, we have this Pinot Noir, it is undoubtedly affected by smoke. Um, let's try, let's experiment with it. There was no pressure to get a wine into bottle. It was just, let's see what we can learn. Let's do our best, right? Um, Oh, it was like the days of harvest though, you know, we had the crews out here. These crews are working harder than anyone in the valley and it's 11 a.m. and we can't harvest because it's nighttime still. And so we're getting headlamps and our, my, my interns were clearing the road from debris and um, we had a power outage in the winery. So we had juice and tank that was supposed to be chilling. And so, but everyone was just cool. Let's just, let's just address this as it comes. and 
no one lost it. I mean, we really kept our wits about us. I'll never forget the day though. I was like, um, okay, so everyone gather around. Um, I'm gonna have to evacuate you from your home because there's a fire coming towards it. So one at a time, <laughs> I'm gonna have to go get your belongings and bring them back here. I will find a place for you to sleep tonight. And they were all like, okay, <laughs> you know? And so, yeah, they, but I, it's like, we had the work to do at the winery. We had our N95s because of the smoke and then evacuating them. But um, I'm so grateful for the people that were here with us that year and for the crews getting our fruit to the support we had from our team members that were working from home, like bringing us coffee, getting us headlamps, like checking in on us. Um, no one gave up. And yeah, I, would it have been sustainable for much longer? No, but um, we learned something. We persevered and wow, we figured out that we're pretty freaking strong and capable. So, and there was, I had like two interns. It was their first harvest and they're both still working in hot wind wine. So I'm like, cool, right on. <laughs> Anything's better than that. But yeah, for it to have not ruined their experience I'm, I'm just grateful for and we have a 2020 pinot in bottle and it's awesome that's actually really impressive i know <laughs> and then i you know every time i open it i'm like how are you doing and i'm like oh yeah so but yeah that was a, it was a toil and we didn't want to we didn't want to lean on our on our the loyalty of our consumers and just say like hey just buy this expensive wine you're gonna like it it was like is this worth their dollar you know and so it took a long time to convince ourselves that and um but we we did it and we made it to organic standards which is awesome <laughs> yeah i'm curious about oh, a word you used quite a bit earlier in the interview of intention or intentionality tell me about as you've developed in your white wine work how that word has how intentionality has played a role what it means to you um, so I try to remember why it is that I like come to work and, and put the effort in every day um, because I don't want to, I don't want to be making wine with sour intentions behind it. Like this is, I'm so lucky to be doing what I'm doing and I'm doing it on the backs of so many people before me. So if my intention isn't to contribute everything I have to make the, the best wine that I can make, I, I feel like I'm doing a, a disservice to the lands that the grapes grow, grew on, the people that grew those grapes, the team that was part of fermenting that, and the team that is charged with selling it. Um, it's also just a personal thing too. Like, I want to feel really good about even when no one's looking that um, I'm giving it what I can and there's no corners being cut. I mean, compromise will snowball very rapidly um, in general, but especially in a winery. So um, if my intention is to contribute wholly, the wine will benefit, the team around me will benefit um, and it just honors everyone that has contributed to the process, to that bigger picture, if you will.
been in this role for a few years now. Tell me how uh, your your kind of your responsibilities have expanded as you've gotten more comfortable, and tell me about the sort of the confidence uh, to do the job. How is how have you seen sort of your confidence grow, and are there moments which you look at as being like, this is a decision I couldn't have made a few years ago, and now I'm making it. Um, yes. So I think my confidence has grown a lot with managing people. Um, I learn a lot every year about that. Um, and yes, general, so much of winemaking, um, at least for me, is intuition based. So confidence has come with just trusting myself, trusting my skill. Um, at the end of the day, if you're, if you're going to the, so I, I, I'm in direct communication with our winemaker all the time, but he's making intuitive decisions as well. So if you're looking for a consistent answer, like this problem A gets solution B and that leads to C, like if you're looking for a consistent answer, you're gonna have a harder time with taking those steps on your own. So building intuition, trusting, that you know the right thing. That comes with time, but that's served me really well in progressing in my role as a winemaker. Um, if I have an off-the-cuff idea, of course I'm checking <laughs> about it first. You know, those middle-of-the-night ideas, like, can we co-ferment <laughs> Pinot and Chard and make notes, like, you know, those crazy things. Those, those are fun to discuss and fun to table, but um, the standard kind of, like, this is how Soder, this is Soder's protocols and they vary to these degrees and that allows for our intuition to be part of the winemaking. Yeah, it's been a gradual process, but it's become more comfortable. Um, managing people, I think that's where my biggest growth has come from. It's, this is the first role where I'm managing day to day, like during harvest that allows for our winemaker to spread himself all over the valley, look at the look at the vines, be among the grapes, tasting them. And so managing that day to day and having the trust of getting those tasks accomplished um, and teaching our team who's come from all over the world, good winemaking skills. I mean, that's what I'm most recently proud of. Um, like I said, I finally have some stuff to tell them, you know, every year. I think I'm up to like 10 things I can tell them now. <laughs> Every year, one more thing. Um, but yeah, that growth has been really meaningful to me. You have to write all those 10 things down soon. They're gonna, I don't know. They're gonna get away. Gone in the wind. Uh, how has Soder changed since you've been here? I feel like we've gotten bigger as a company. Um, we've, well, I think a really nice change just for focusing winemaking. Um, when I started North Valley, it was part of the Soder umbrella. So, I mean, a really successful brand now gets to focus on itself. And so now we're just focusing on Planet Oregon, our origin series of Pinot Noirs and um, the, you know, high-end estate and sparkling wines. So that's been a nice evolution just to help with focus. There's been some cultural changes, you know, just like within the, like, it's so familial and we like turn to each other and it's just like, we all feel comfortable and good in our environment, but like I'm also kind of happy to say that there is a a thread that really works as far as wine quality goes. Um, that we kind of just 
adapt year after year, but we just kind of get to persevere with that style intact. The Chardonnay has gotten better. The program's changed. I'm gonna say gotten better. Oh my God, someone's gonna watch this. Um, the program's changed. So that's really nice to see a Chardonnay evolution just to be part of a commitment to its potential in Oregon. Um, that's been really, really meaningful for me just to, to be a part of, part of that. Um, we've also have two estate vineyards beyond Mineral Springs where we're sitting that have come online um, in really powerful ways as far as fruit. So a site in Ribbon Ridge and Eola Amity will actually be getting a lot of fruit this year from new plantings in the Eola Amity uh, vineyard Terran. It'll be really fun to um, create that new program from that estate. We've been making wine from it, from original plantings, but you know, to see how that program evolves. Um, but yeah, I do, I do feel that there's a commitment to improving every year and um, working on sustainability measures and it's an evolving discussion. So there's amazing things that work really well here and every year we're reflecting on what can be improved in every department. Um, and that's top down. I appreciate that there's that self-reflection. You talked earlier about your, your initial impressions of, of the Oregon wine industry in general. How has the industry changed or evolved in the time you've been here? Um, I, it's become less, insul less insular. And I think there's a pretty stark need and call for being less passive with uh, making diversity a priority. Um, and I think that resting on laurels or hoping diversity kind of just comes to us, um, that's less of the paradigm, you know, kind of laying out pipelines and saying like, this is what we're committed to. And um, just knowing how inherently important it is to put that effort in. Um, it's been a really nice thing to see. Um, and I mean, it's always been this way, but like the collegiate nature, the community that's just inherent to Oregon, I'm just glad it hasn't changed. I've only been here since 2014, but um, it's so awesome to feel like you can kind of call up your neighbor, your colleague, and just be like, hey, I have this like quirky issue. Do you have any advice? And to, to receive comprehensive advice, to be, you know, to without judgment, just like, oh yeah, like that happened last year. Like this is what we did. And actually I have some more of this left over if you want. Like it's really empowering to feel like you can just turn to anyone and get um, insight, get help, and just kind of talk it out. I'm glad that hasn't changed. Um, and then beyond that, it's getting pretty freaking warm. So, you know, varietals being planted that aren't Pinot Noir, that's pretty exciting. I, I, I mean, had amazing Gamays and Trousseaus and Syrahs from the Willamette Valley. And I think in 2014, even though that was a warm year, it just wasn't really considered as viable. 
vineyards being planted higher and higher, I mean, those are getting, that's getting kind of scary, but um, seeing the valley adapt to those changes is, um, it just, it means a lot that our community is up for it and um, they're all kind of in it together, <laughs> figuring it out. So what comes next for Oregon then? God, I don't know. <laughs> what do you hope, what do you hope comes next? Um, well, I'd love to see people put a, some effort into um, like native oak restoration. Um, vineyard development is amazing. I mean, I'm sitting amongst vines that I work with, but um, realizing that we should also work on protecting the native um, habitats that benefit these vines, that benefit us, that benefit the ecosystem. Um, there's amazing um, organizations that are doing work in that regard and um, I hope that that's something more and more people take seriously. We've planted a lot of oak trees here at Soder and we are doing clearing work in the native oak habitats in savannas to make sure that what we have is thriving, but um, I hope that more people start doing that. Um, and then, yeah, beyond that, just um, continue. I think that Oregon, I mean, we're gonna just continue to be a forefront of the discussion of some of the highest end wines in this country. It's really cool to hear Jancis Robinson say that she hosted a summit in Washington, D.C., and her theme was Oregon Chardonnay. I mean, for someone, MW based in London, to want that to be the topic of discussion, I mean, it's really a great thing. So just, I see more and more limelight for Oregon, and it's so well-deserved. Um, and hopefully, from vineyard stewards to sales and DTC and um, wine and the production, like all of us can benefit from that kind of, you know, rise together. Because again, there's a big picture, but there's no lesser part of it. We need to all kind of be brought up together. So yeah, kind of see that for Oregon. Brought that full circle. Nicely, nicely done. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's good. That's a callback. Yep. Uh, what about, what's next for you? What are you looking ahead to either in career or otherwise? That's such a great question. I like it's when I ponder like other places to um, to live or make wine, just because I'm curious. Um, I'm like, well, maybe I could go to England, right? Make some sparkling wine there. If I'm staying in the United States, I cannot think of a place I'd rather live than Oregon. I have tried. I've been like wine country in Montana. Like I'm like, are there? You know, I don't know. And so, uh, <laughs> the quality of wine is so amazing here, and. Um, it's just a beautiful place to live, but then it's, okay, where can I potentially get some land, plant my own thing, you know? Where can you kind of be part of the pioneers, you know? And so, yeah, it's fun to play around with those concepts, but yeah. Um, yeah, right now I'm just happy here and learning. If the learning stops, come interview me again. I'll figure out where I'm going, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. Uh, last question I have for you is about sort of, uh, what are you proudest of, or what is your greatest accomplishment so far? Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm proud of um, 
the resiliency that working in the wine industry has has shown me. Um, I feel like I kind of grew up in it, and there's been truly ungraceful moments. But um, when I reflect back, you know, it's funny the years. Like I kind of measure them with the cycle of the vine, and when you see a vine you know, a vine at bud break, you can't help but reflect on where you were at at bud break last year. And some years I'm like, oh, well, I was the same person a year ago. Oh gosh, that went really quickly. And some years you're like, oh my God, I've come so far. So I guess something that I'm proudest about is that gaining that self-reflection. It's kind of this like cool embodiment. It's gone hand in hand with my work as a winemaker. Um, it just made me more patient and more um, compassionate and you know I started off as kind of a bruiser ambitious bruiser and now I've gained this the intro to some grace and I'm working on it every year but um, and and through the creative pursuit of winemaking you know I am really really proud of that of the creative outlet that um, I've developed and it's all personal it's all subjective but I'm proud of it um, and I'm grateful for it. Well, excellent. That's all the questions that I have for you. Great. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything that we didn't cover today that you'd like to cover? No, we covered things I didn't even know how to answer. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Rich. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your story with us on this beautiful first day of summer, 2023. Solstice. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rich. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.